Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, a library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today on the Hutchmoot Podcast, we're excited to share with you a session led by Lanier Ivester and Andrew Peterson called The Old House and the New Creation from 2020's Hutchmoot Homebound. In this session, Andrew and Lanier reflect on the deep relationships they have with their homes and the physical places of life and how our connection to and care for the earth functions as a vital investment in both the here and now and in the world yet to come. Enjoy. Well, hello, Hutchmoot. My name is Lanier Ivester, and I am so thankful to be here at Northwind Manor. Uh, and I have a few words and thoughts to share with all of you um, about home. So, what is home? I know it seems like such an obvious question, but if you ask a dozen people, you'll probably get two dozen or more answers. Is it a place? Is it a group of people? Is it one person in particular? Or as Edward Sharp would tell us, a place where you're with one person in particular? Is it heaven? Is it earth or Eden? Is it a house where you grew up? Your grandmother's house? The house you live right now? What do we mean when we say that a place is homey? Or otherwise, what do we mean when we say that someone makes us feel at home? There's a lot of questions to throw out at the very beginning. Um, And in a way, the answer to every one of these questions, of course, is yes. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge them, particularly now, when we've all spent so much time in our houses, confronting, perhaps contending with, what home even means. Now, more than ever, it's important that we as Christians develop a strong theology of home, because we need to know what home is what it can be in the midst of a broken and homesick world. Our home, in the very purest sense, of course, is God himself. Now, I know that kind of sounds like cheating. Of course, the answer is God. But God is the object and the source of all true longings for intimacy, belonging, shelter, and meaning. And all of these expressions and experiences of home in this life can ultimately be gathered up into our journey home to God and are at homeness with his character in this world. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place, sings the psalmist. Lord, we live in you. And the miraculous flip side of this, of course, is that Christ lives in us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. God is our home. And all of these earthly expressions and experiences of home can serve to teach us what that means. Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, a permanent dwelling. And one of the things I love to think about is how these earthly dwellings of ours can help prepare us for that place. For the past 20 years or so, my husband Philip and I have lived in an old farmhouse on the outskirts of Atlanta. It's a simple, Piedmont Plain, four over four, once common in our part of the world, with a center hall and an L jutting out the back, which we believed to have been the original kitchen. It's now our den. It was a federal encampment and a field hospital during the Civil War and a working farm for well over a century. In 170 years, it's only been in three families, which is pretty unusual. 
And while its original 200 acres has shrunk to just over 10, it's still this startling little rural pocket tucked in among the sprawl of the suburbs of Metro Atlanta. Philip grew up there, and I literally came to it as a bride because we had our wedding reception in the backyard. And in the two decades since, that house has taught me, is teaching me, as perhaps nothing else could have done, what it means for me to be at home in God. Now, it's a very personal journey, but I believe it's one that each of our dwelling places holds the potential for. Now, for reference, I am a wildly idealistic INFP, Enneagram 4, perfectionistic homebody. And the Rough House, as it's known in our community, named for the man who built it in the 1850s, is wildly imperfect, inconvenient at times, cold in the winter, subject to the alarmingly relentless laws of entropy and decay. The first summer I lived there, I made a list of all the things we needed to do to make it our home, to realize the ideal Rough House that I saw in my mind's eye. I thought it was a reasonable list, and all the naivety of 25, I thought we could knock it out in a year. Two at the most. 20 years later, we're still working through that initial list. And as you will see, we've actually had to go back and do over, thing, do things again, things we thought would outlast us and our tenure at the Rough House. With nothing short of a maternal force, that house has battered my perfectionism, challenged my assumptions about home and family, chastened me at times to the absolute breaking point. It has sheltered our longings, it has watched with us in our grief. It has held our joys and broken our hearts and diminished our savings, and we love it dearly. Three years ago, we nearly lost the rough house to a fire. I had just thrown a load of sheets and towels into the dryer, and the next thing we knew, our house was in flames. And it was the most horrifying experience of our lives as we stood there watching this happen. Um, and it was electrical malfunction which brought everything safe and normal and secure crashing down around us in an instant. And in the five minutes while Philip and I were waiting for the firefighters to arrive, Philip and I both thought that our house was going to burn to the ground. In the mercy of God, it didn't. But as it was, the damage was so extensive that about a third of it had to be taken back to the studs. All the ceilings in the house had to come down. A lot of the old plaster had to be torn out. All the original molding and trim and beadboard had to be carefully pried away in the hopes that we'd be able to save it. In a lot of ways, the mitigation after the fire was worse than the fire itself, seeing as so much of the demolition was centered upon areas into which we had poured our utmost love and labor. The kitchen, the den with its beautiful floor-to-ceiling bookcases that Philip had built with a craftsman's care, the William Morris wallpaper I'd splurged on because the roses of its pattern were a constant symbol to me of the way that God is always making the barren places in our lives beautiful. Our insurance company put us up at our request in a camper in the backyard so that we could stay on site during all this work. And I remember sitting out in that little camper, literally with my hands over my ears, trying to block out the awful rendings and groanings of the demolition process. It sounded like my house was crying out in agony. And it was an agony that had its echo in my own heart. And as I sat with that sorrow day after day, ensconced in an RV, in full view of my long for promised land of our rough house, a strange and beautiful conviction started to dawn on me. 
namely that all grief is homesickness. All sorrow has its seat in exile. In that awful cleaving blow which separated us from God, our true home. But what did God tell his people to do in captivity? He told them to build houses and to plant gardens. He told them to dwell, to settle down, to put seeds in the ground and to eat the fruit that came of them, to enflesh their hope in the most physical, necessary of ways. In other words, don't just survive, flourish. Practice resurrection, as Wendell Berry would say. Let the shaping of a roof over your head articulate your faith in the restoration of all things. Now, we too are in exile, of course. And I realized something else that summer as the weeks dragged into months. I realized that everything I'd ever believed about home and family, every ideal I'd ever cherished about the incarnational potential of our houses was true out there in that camper, or it wasn't true anywhere. And what I mean by incarnational is simply something that makes seen the unseen, some tangible witness in our world which makes the invisible visibly present to us, howsoever imperfectly. In Pilgrim's Inn by Elizabeth Gooch, which is one of my favorite books, the children of the family have a conversation about physical images and their power to communicate spiritual reality. What's a holy image? asked Jose, round-eyed. Something someone makes for the love of God, said Ben, steadily. Then a house could be a holy image, said Caroline. Yes, said Ben. Then this house is. Yes, said Ben. Now what these children had stumbled upon was the fact that we are not meant to know and love God in a way that's divorced from the practical, physical matter of our lives. But smack in the middle, of the pots and pans and garden trowels and books and board games of our ordinary days. The incarnation of Christ eradicated the so-called sacred-secular divide. According to Thomas Howard, the incarnation has transfigured the whole fabric of our lives, delivering it back to us and us back to it in the seamlessness that we lost in our exile from Eden. And I love the idea of seamlessness because it's such a profound picture to me of the redemption that's already stitching this world back together. The cares of a kingdom that are intimately interwoven with the material culture of our lives. And it's for this reason I knew that if it mattered to shape a space that honored this reality, the seamlessness of the Christian life in the rough house, then it mattered in that camper. If beauty and order and hospitality and holy intention mattered in the rough house, it mattered in a camper in the backyard. Location has nothing to do with it. The great question is always, will we see the holy potential of what's right in front of us? And will we shape it for the love of God in a way that affirms something that's true about Him in our world? Interestingly enough, we had a constant stream of visitors while we were living in that camper, and I can't help but think that God has a sense of humor, even as He invited me to put my ideals about home and hospitality to the test, because He brought us so many guests during that time, crazy as it was, that we had to pull our little 1962 Airstream camper up next to the RV uh, and park it adjacent so that we would have somewhere to put people when they came to stay with us. Um, And we called our little encampment Camp Mara. And it was as much an acknowledgement of our struggle as a declaration of our hope. Mara was the last stop in the wilderness before the Israelites received manna. Mara, where in the miraculous mercy of God, 
the bitter waters were made sweet. Now, looking back, I can see that my central question over all of the challenges of that year was not so much, why did God let this happen? But is God really good? Is it really safe to make my home in Him, to build my life upon His character when everything that's meant home to me has been snatched away? Well, it was a long journey from that question back home to the rough house. But the answer to that question was and is a resounding yes. It was not an easy yes. It was, in fact, a yes that pushed Philip and me to our very limits, a yes that, in the words of the message translation, took us to hell and back. As we faced the destruction and dismantling of nearly 20 years of work, and as we set ourselves to the arduous task of remaking all that had been unmade, we came to understand as never before that redemption is a force that's already at work in our world, that God is not destined His creation for annihilation, but for restoration, and that all creation is indeed crying out for it as in the pains of childbirth. What do those birth pangs mean but that new life is on the way, that a new creation is indeed coming into our world? This hope became visibly present to us as we worked alongside our contractors to restore the rough house, to make all these sad things come untrue. And even though the sad things of the fire and its aftermath left their permanent mark on us, the imprint of this hope pressed even deeper, down to the marrow of our souls. This is why we were so careful to call it a restoration and not a renovation. This wasn't a do-over. It was the reclamation of an original intent, a redemption. There is a scene in A Room with a View by Ian Forster, uh, and this is a rare occasion in which I actually like the scene in the movie better than the book. Um, but the young George Emerson is plagued by the dissonance between the world's beauties and the world's sorrows. And his father, Mr. Emerson, sees this budding romance between his son George and young Miss Lucy Honeychurch as the antidote to his son's despair. In one of the most important conversations in the book, Mr. Emerson pleads with Lucy to recognize the great, I would even say sacred potential in this love. Make my boy think like us, he says. Make him realize that by the side of the everlasting why, there is a yes and a yes and a yes. And as Christians, yes is always our answer to the everlasting why. We can look at death and disappointment and brokenness through the lens of the incarnation and the resurrection and say yes to the loving purposes of God. But it's not a passive yes. It's an ascent and a victory cry rolled into one. George and Lucy's yes to love was an active yes, staring down the everlasting why. And as believers, our efforts to put material substance to what we believe is an active yes that resounds in the spiritual realm. Placemaking, the making and keeping of a place on, on earth is an active yes. A yes that flies in the face of rootlessness and loneliness and exile. A yes which affirms we really can build our lives on, make ourselves at home in the goodness of God in this world. Now, I learned something about restoration over all those long, weary months. Restoration is tedious. It is inconvenient. It's very hard to find people with the faith to cooperate with you in it. When it's so much easier and cheaper just to rip everything out and start all over again, restoration can look like a fool's errand, a titanic waste of time and energy, a backward perspective rather than a forward one. 
but we serve a God who restores, who gives back the years the locusts have eaten, who trades us beauty for our ashes, who at enormous pain and personal expense went back and undid the awful thing that separated us from him. Now, one of the things I heard over and over again after the fire from very well-meaning souls was, this world is not our home. And while I know and I vow that we are strangers and pilgrims here, that uh, as Elizabeth Elliot would say, we are citizens of another country, that phrase really started to rub me raw because every time I heard it, something in me cried out, yes, yes, it is. This good earth with its flowers and its firelight, its laughter and friendship and freshly baked bread, its windsong and starlight and champagne, it's meant to be our home. God designed it specifically that we should thrive here. We were never made for heaven, writes Christy Purifoy in her book, Roots and Sky. Our bodies, formed of dust, were always intended for a life on earth. This world is our home. The great promise has always been not that we would go to live with God, but that God would come to make his home with us. Our very DNA remembers what it meant to walk with God in an earthly garden. This is not to say that the promise of heaven is not real or that God is incapable of translating these very earthbound bodies of ours into bodies which will somehow be at home in his presence forever and not be consumed. But that heaven is a whole lot closer and a whole lot more familiar than any of us imagine. And that what we believe about both our past and our future shapes our present in vitally important ways. This world these homes, this is where we learn what it means to be at home in God. Placemaking brings what we believe down into the practical matter of our everyday lives. Now, another way that the incarnation impacts our day-to-day lives is that, as Dan Allender put it, it opens our hearts to the presence of beauty. And I believe that this is important in a domestic context because beauty is intrinsically linked with our longings for permanence. Longings which will one day be satisfied, of course, in the presence of God, but which operate in this world as a kind of hook that's always drawing our hearts towards the transcendence that we're made for. In his fascinating book, The Architecture of Happiness, Alain de Botton argues that ideals of domestic beauty are a consolation for beauty's many absences in our world. He even goes so far as to suggest that we can't rightly appreciate and experience the role of beauty in a domestic context until we have suffered in life, which I find very interesting. It is in dialogue with pain, he writes, that many beautiful things acquire their value. Now, when I say beautiful things, please don't hear costly things or things that trends and magazines have told us are beautiful. I mean the art and act of creating spaces in our lives of hewing homes out of the wilderness of this world that are characterized by a love for and a careful cultivation of beauty. And that ought to look as different as there are people in this world. Beauty is not expensive, extravagant, or expendable, but it is crucial, I believe, to establishing the kind of home that images our at-homeness in God. Beauty is both an attribute of God and a servant of God in that it opens our heart to His presence in this world. And this is very important because our homes are telling a story about who we are and what we value. And when we invite someone into our home, we're inviting them into our story. When we cultivate beauty in our surroundings, 
we are affirming that people are valuable and that everything really does matter in the light of Christ's presence in our lives, that we are his dwelling place and that our place on earth reflects that. The catch is, of course, that our homes are telling a story whether we're intentionally shaping that story or not. We can tell a story of indifference or discontent, or we can use what is at our disposal to shape a narrative of redemptive love and unquenchable hope. We can light a candle, put some flowers on the table. We can hang mirrors opposite windows to bring them the light. We can cover our walls with images and colors that bespeak what's meaningful to us, what brings us pleasure. Pleasure, in fact, was the hallmark of God's original creation. With the artlessness of ultimate sovereignty, God looked at what he'd made each day and pronounced it good. The trees of the garden were not merely delicious to eat. They were pleasant to the sight. Beauty mattered to God in his human's first home, so much so that he prioritized it right along nourishment. Of course, it's by not human beings lacking the infinite resources of the Almighty. We do not have this holy luxury. Food and shelter will always take precedence over ornament. But to deny that beauty has a role to play in our overall well-being is to cheat ourselves of what's left of our Edenic inheritance. Beauty, even in the domestic sense, has the power to stab and to sing, reminding us of all we have lost and affirming our longings for all to be restored. Now, something you may not know about me, I am an endangered species. At seven generations deep, I'm an increasingly rare variety of Southerner, known collectively as Georgia native. My accent may not sound like it, and that's because I'm from Atlanta, so homogenized now. Um, but I come from both the north and the south of the fall line, that invisible demarcation dividing the hardwood-dominated northern region of our state from the pine-clad coastal plain. I come from farmers and poets, train engineers and teachers, and a fiery clan of Scotch-Irish crackers who scraped a living out of the sandy South Georgia soil. I come from the wilds of Atlanta when it was just a scrappy railroad terminus called Marthasville, and from the tangled, cypress-hung banks of the Ottawa River. In short, I come from the place where I live, and for most of my life, this has felt like a blessing. I love being where I'm from. I love being part of a place. I love the fact that one of my best friends and I can boast of the fact that our great-great-great-grandmothers were friends and neighbors. I love that when I acquired some of my great-grandmother's books, I opened the fly, I think it was Girl of the Limerloss, I opened the flyleaf and there was the name of one of my roughhouse roughs. <laughs> um, at any rate, I love the little clues with which my life is laced that remind me I'm part of a story and that a place on earth, as much as the people I'm from, has gone into the making of me. Now, I realize that this is unusual and it's getting rarer in our world, but even this kind of history is not enough. Merely staying put does not create a sense of home, which is why so many of us are drawn to the writings of Wendell Berry. Berry is articulating our collective homesickness in a way that's driving people not only to acknowledge the ache that we feel for connection with God and others and the earth, but to act upon that ache, to build and plant not just houses and gardens, but communities, to commit in whatever circumstances we find ourselves to, to sustainability, fidelity to the hard work of ma making and being made by a place. To say that Wendell Berry is telling everyone to go back and live on farms or simply stay where you were born is a gross oversimplification of his message. 
but he is asking us to live like everything matters, to believe that our loving intention in this links our work in this world to something eternal. It can be easy at first glance to romanticize the kind of seamlessness that Barry espouses, to embrace the ache without heeding the call to act, to make excuses, to defer because we're not yet quite where we want to be. But if you asked me what was the one thing out of Barry's writings and worldview that has had the most impact on my life and my choices, it would be this, choose what you've been given. Now, that's not a direct Barry quote as far as I know, but it's the sum total of my experience with his words and the ways that they have challenged me. In the summer of 2006, I was struggling mightily with my sense of place. I was completely overwhelmed with the upkeep of the rough house, daily confronted with the discrepancy between my ideals of beauty and order and our limitations of time and money, to the point that I started to question whether I was even up to it at all whether I wanted to spend the rest of my life fighting rot and leeks and termites and poison ivy. It suddenly seemed like a burden never to be able to go in the grocery store without running into someone I knew. And I started dreaming of a tiny seashell of a house far from everything and everyone we'd ever known. A house that would not break as ours had done that summer in an evident conspiracy to drive me to my wit's end. After months of essential repairs, I was starting to feel like the rough house was a physical weight. We'd had contractors walking off the job left and right, leaving gutters strewn in the yard and half-scraped clapboards languishing for paint. The roofer had discovered not one or two layers of shingles under the rotten cedar shakes, but four. The dormers had been invaded by squirrels and the barn was, was sinking on the northeast side at alarming rate. Now, one thing I learned that summer is that contentment is not always a good thing and discontent is not always a bad thing, but it, we have to be willing to listen to both and to name our powerful emotions in the presence of God. But all I could really think about that summer was how desperate I was to be somewhere else. One of the characteristic diseases of the 20th century, Wendell Berry tells us, is the suspicion that people's lives would be greatly improved if they were somewhere else. Barry's words grated on me. Nevertheless, I called Philip at the office one day and I told him that if we did not get on an airplane and go somewhere, anywhere, I was going to lose my mind. So after much discussion, we decided on a last minute trip to Maine. Maine in September seemed the very cure for the sudden upflaming of confusion and overwhelm. The very place to run away and hide for our trouble, from our troubles for a while. We duly found a cottage that was so remote it was on an island of its own, reached after miles of mist-shrouded gravel track. Nothing could have suited me more. And for a week, I sat on the rocks overlooking our own little secret bay and read Anne Mara Lindbergh and Thomas Kelly and The Country of the Pointed Firs and basically found my center again and my wits along with it, hopefully. I was so fully present in that little cottage in Maine that I didn't even let myself think about what was going on at home or what was waiting for us there. I sank into the peace of that place like a tired child, and it was health to my body and wine to my soul. I never wanted to leave. One day, however, in a burst of domesticity, I decided to make ginger cake to go with our tea. Such a simple thing, but it filled our cottage with an intoxicating fragrance. I was immediately arrested, plucked, beckoned, wooed. At the scent of that little cake, my heart was pierced through with homesickness, 
It took me completely off guard. I was overwhelmed here in this lovely place with longing for my place. The tide had turned, home was calling me, and I felt in that moment I could have walked all the way from Maine to Georgia barefoot. It reminded me of the moment in The Wind in the Willows when Mole and Rat are traversing the woods and fields one winter afternoon, and Mole catches the scent of his old home in the air. Mole End, which he'd abandoned the summer before for a new life of friendship and adventure on the riverbank with Rat. Now, with a rush of old memories, how clearly it stood up before him in the darkness. Shabby indeed, and small, and poorly furnished, and yet his. The home he had made for himself. The home he had been so happy to get back to after his day's work. And the home had been happy with him, too, evidently, and was missing him, and wanted him back, and was telling him so, through his nose, sorrowfully, reproachfully, but with no bitterness or anger only with plaintive reminder that it was there and wanted him. Like Mole, I believed in that moment, believed to this very day, that the rough house wanted Philip and me. That together we were meant to shape an at-homeness that had nothing to do with rotten shingles and sagging clapboards and everything to do with the seamless sacramentalism of this given life. That little experience in Maine showed me how powerfully our our perspective can change by simply opening our hands to receive what's already ours, but to receive it in a new way, with a renewed will and hopefully the humility to accept our role in a story that's larger than our own lives, to acknowledge that we declare, celebrate, revel in what's real with real things, that sometimes the best way to unfurl hope's banners over the war-torn landscape of life is to make a bed with a sweet expanse of clean sheets and to set a pretty table with candles and wine glasses and something green from the yard to which the fragrance of earth still clings. That in this now but not yet a kingdom economy, the making and keeping of a place on earth is holy work. Because as Wendell Berry writes in Hannah Coulter, there is no better place than this, not in this world. And it is by the place we've got and our love for it and keeping of it that this world is joined to heaven. That was wonderful. Lanier Ivester, you guys. She's awesome. Uh, I love Hutchmoot for so many reasons. One of the things that I love is the fact that We've long had a history of pairing people together to do their sessions. And a lot of times everybody's so busy and running around like crazy that like I didn't, I haven't heard your session until just now. Uh, And so uh, I was so pleased at the way that you basically, we mentioned so many of the same things. And so I'm done. See you guys. Thank you so much. (laughs) Just kidding. So uh, I am working on a... uh, a new book right now, and um, I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the book is, but as best as I can tell, it is a book about trees. Um, I have enjoyed, uh, I've always loved trees, and it's been fascinating once I've kind of like, as I've begun to kind of shape my idea of what this book is supposed to be, um, I've asked a lot of people like, hey, so when you think about trees that have meant something to you in the course of your life, what, what comes to mind? And to like, I've never met anybody who doesn't have a memory associated with some specific tree in their history. And so it's been fun to kind of use the trees in my own story as a way to learn more about 
the story God is telling me through my own life and uh, use them as an excuse to kind of like dig deep. So I'm going to share maybe two chapters. We'll see how it goes. I don't know if, if, it, if it looks like everybody's dying after the first one. Uh, they're kind of conjoined, so uh, we'll see how it goes. But I'm going to tell uh, a story because I don't work with abstractions too terribly well. I don't really know what I think about something until I've fought my way through the story of it. And so I'm going to tell a story that echoes some of what Linear talked about uh, in the hopes that it will um, wake something up in you uh, or maybe help us to understand uh, our God a little better. Um, One of the great blessings of uh, this whole pandemic season, um, there have been a lot of things that have not been blessings or have not felt like blessings, um, but I have never been home so much in my adult life. I think it was about a month into the pandemic that I realized that I'd spent more consecutive nights in my own bed than in 20 years. And so being home this much has given me a chance to like really pay attention to uh, our property and our home, our family, and kind of the rhythm of life. Like I haven't seen a whole, se- whole seasons in Nashville in the way that I have uh, in these last few months. So it's been a good season to kind of sit and think about these things. So let me uh, tell you a couple stories. I once destroyed a tree that owed its life in part to the remains of my ancestors. Most families claim at least one ancestry nerd, and in my family, I am he. It started a while ago when I first began to visit Sweden regularly, and I went on a decade-long quest to track down my living relatives there. The Swedes are on my dad's side of the family. I didn't know much about my mom's until more recently. It turns out the cliques, formerly the Glucks, were French Huguenots. A quick history lesson in case, like me, you forgot what Huguenots were. In France in the 1600s, there was a minority of Protestants, mostly Reformed Calvinists, called Huguenots. They were vastly outnumbered by the Catholics and suffered severe persecution. In order to end the strife, King Henry IV, a Protestant, converted to Catholicism and at the same time issued the Edict of Nantes, I think that's how you say it, which granted religious rights to the Huguenots and made peace for a while. In 1685, Louis XIV revoked the edict, edict, stripping religious rights from all those Calvinists who suddenly needed to get out of Dodge. There followed a migration of hundreds of thousands of French Protestants to America, England, Holland, Prussia, and Germany. My eighth great-grandfather, by the most wonderful name of Bartholomaeus Hieronymus Gluck, That's right. Packed up himself and his family in Calais, France, and moved just over the border into Germany, where they'd be safe. In the 1700s, his grandson, Johannes Gluck, crossed the Atlantic and settled in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where they dropped the umlaut, swapped out the G and the U, and became cliques. The next generation migrated from there to Tennessee to become some of the first non-Aboriginal settlers in the area. My research revealed that about an hour northeast of Chattanooga, as the writer, uh, that there is an official click cemetery. In 2015, I was in Chattanooga as the writer in residence uh, at Covenant College, uh, teaching a creative writing course. And uh, with some spare time, one afternoon, I fired up my trusty GPS and set out to find where my great, 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 great grandfather was buried. After exiting Interstate 75, I took a left turn at the Hardee's in Madisonville. And the world abruptly changed from the modern American blight of strip malls and traffic lights to lush, deep woods, interspersed with glimpses of cattle in distant fields, as if I'd driven through a time portal. I pushed on for 30 minutes or so, navigating ever-narrowing roads till the car tires were crunching on gravel and bouncing over potholes. 
On my right, a river was visible now and then through the stands of broadleaf trees, and on the left, the forest climbed the steep side of an Appalachian foothill. Once in a while, I'd pass the single wide, a single-wide trailer or an old cabin whose overgrown front yard was strewn with cinder blocks and farming detritus. It was a public road, but in my spotless little rental car, I felt like a trespasser. I began to rehearse my story in case someone asked me what I was up to. My mom was a clique. Her, gran- her father's grandfather is buried around here somewhere. Please don't shoot. The GPS indicated that I was all but surrounded by water. The Tennessee River sends out tendrils of distributaries that form long, meandering peninsulas, and it was on one of these narrow fingers of land that I found my ancestors' resting place. Beyond a makeshift metal sign that read Click Cemetery lay a weedy patch of ground hemmed in by several tall eastern white pines. I kicked around in the weeds till I found the grave for Henry Jackson Click. His tombstone was nicer than the rest, made of white marble like the ones you see in Arlington National Cemetery, due to the fact that he rode as a Tennessee volunteer in the War of 1812. The picture I found of his son shows the rugged, humorless face typical of the early settlers, people who had scratched out difficult lives in what would have been the middle of nowhere. To tell the truth, I was there in the 21st century, and it was still the middle of nowhere. What old Henry wouldn't have given for a sausage biscuit from Hardee's. Supposedly, letters exist between Daniel Boone and the Click family, and somewhere not far from the cemetery where I stood, a tree bore the words, D. Boone killed a bar on tree in year 1760. I don't know how one kills a bear on a tree, but Daniel Boone was the man for the job, and it's entirely possible that great-grandpappy Henry would have heard about it. As I stood there contemplating bears and war and sausage biscuits, I spotted a tiny pine sapling standing about a foot tall, a few feet from the grave. With a furtive glance around, I gently tugged it out of the ground and stashed it in the car. As soon as I got back to the college, I wrapped it in wet paper towels for the ride home that night. The next morning, I planted it in the front field of the Warren, thinking about what a great story it would make in 15 years or so. Well, later that summer, we got a lot of rain and the grass got away from me. The tree got swallowed up. I didn't realize I had mowed it over until the next day. Sorry, Grandpappy. So it wasn't the first tree I had mowed over. Full of good fatherly intentions, I meant to plant a tree at the Warren for each of my kids. I asked each of them what their favorite was, and after a lot of thought, Aiden told me red oak. I bought a five-foot-tall red oak sapling and lovingly planted it, also in the front field, praying that Aiden would feed on God's word and grow, uh, and grow in righteousness like a tree planted by streams of water. This one lasted a few months, so it was rooted and reaching for the Tennessee sky. But then I got into beekeeping. Beekeeping is a fascinating enterprise, especially in the early days. The bees are so doggone interesting, always up to something, whether bearding off the front of the hive on a hot day or swarming or meticulously cleaning the hive entrance. I was humming along on the lawnmower back and forth for at least an hour in the front field, and every time I passed the bees, I would stare at them in mute wonder. Well, on one of the passes, I stared so hard that when I turned my attention to the yard again, I just had time to see the red oak vanish under the front and spew out the side in a thousand finely shredded pieces. I think I paid $50 for that tree. The bees, incidentally, are still around and still just as interesting. Sorry, Aiden. So mowing casualties notwithstanding, I'll have you know I've successfully planted quite a few trees here at the Warren. Two red maples, 
three autumn blaze maples, two sugar maples, two pin oaks, two chestnut oaks, one white oak, three weeping willows, four apple trees, two pears, one plum, one plum cot, one cottonwood, one mother nut hickory, five white birches, three peaches, one river birch, one eastern redbud, one weeping redbud, two witch hazels, one American linden, two bald cypresses, one deodar cedar, one black hill spruce, one black cherry, one bing cherry, one chase tree, two brown turkey figs, one coosa dogwood, and one dogwood. That list was off the top of my head. There are probably a few more, which I'll remember when I walk the property at dusk. My point is this. I've always loved trees. Since I drove my moped down the sandy back roads of Lake Butler, among all those live oaks and scrub pines, to the banyan tree at Thomas Edison's estate in Fort Myers, to the 29 pecan trees at my parents' house, I've made it a habit to notice trees. I'm sure everybody does it to some degree. However, living as we do in our air-conditioned homes, working as many of us do in our offices, it has become far too easy to forget how marvelous a tree really is. Even now, looking through the window of the chapter house in the summer, it's too easy to merely see a green tangle of leaves and branches. But if I stop and consider what I'm actually seeing, the mass diverges into particularity. I see that the heart-shaped leaves of the eastern redbud I planted a few years ago are quivering in a light breeze. I see the long, lazy arm of a winged elm drooping over the redbud. The quirky, irregular hackberry branches twist out over the elm and mingle with those of a leafy, orderly green ash. An eastern red cedar grows straight as a fence post beyond the tangle of elm branches. Particularity is crucial, and it's a gift. I stopped naming chickens a few years ago. When we first got them, the kids were little, and back when chicken raising was novel, each chick seemed to have its own personality, which meant the kids took great pleasure in giving each of them names. We had Tigris and Euphrates, Hermione, Toast, two chickens named Larry, Spaceman Spiff, Zebra, and, though they're now embarrassed to admit it, one named Fluffy. Over the years, we lost a few to neighborhood dogs and red-tailed hawks, and as the kids grew out of their fascination with hens and we grew weary of investing so much in a bird that could be so easily gobbled, the thrill of naming them lost its luster. It's less traumatic to say, we lost a chicken today, than to say, Fluffy got mauled. We only, <laughs> we only have four now, which is plenty for my egg sandwich needs, and I don't keep track of any of their names, but it's indisputable that I cared more about the chickens when I could call them something. My parents named all their animals too, but they didn't stop there. They also named parts of their property in Florida. There's Goose Grove, Elderberry Holler, and my dad's home office next to his wood shop, which he smugly named the Word Shop. Naming creation comes as naturally to humans, it seems, as ruining it. Could it be that by naming something, by making it particular, we are, in a sense, making it holy? God, after all, demonstrated as much when he chose, out of all the peoples of the earth, the Jews, to be his people, his holy nation, a community set apart to experience his love in a particular way. I have fond memories of my parents' acquisition of their six acres in Florida. As I said, we mostly lived in parsonages growing up. That model wouldn't be a bad setup, except for the fact that the continuation of Dad's job was directly tied to the continuation of his housing, not to mention the hassle of my parents having to ask the board any time they wanted to change something. There was also the marked lack of privacy. My bedroom was literally 15 feet from the fellowship hall. The house and the church shared a phone line. So anytime someone called to talk to dad or the youth minister or the church secretary, the phone also rang in our kitchen. 
If we answered and someone needed Brother Art, we had to run over to the church office to tell him. I don't mean to complain because there were plenty of perks, like the ping pong table, the secondhand clothes closet, which we raided for costumes, and the comforting availability of the church piano at 2 a.m. when I couldn't sleep. Living in a house that isn't really yours, however, gets old, especially when you harbor a deep-rooted agrarian impulse, which my, bar- my parents both had in spades. My mom grew up on a dairy farm in South Florida. My dad grew up in the little town of Lake City. As a result, we had two very different sets of grandparents, the city grandparents and the country grandparents. Granny and Granddaddy Peterson lived in town, small though that town was, and Grandma and Grandpa Click lived in the swampy, Dagobah system-like wilds of Okeechobee, where I always expected to spot Yoda doddering through the wetlands. There were roaches aplenty in Granny Peterson's house in Lake City, thanks in part to the live oaks. Uh, But at Grandma Click's Lakeport, there were not only roaches, but also snakes and alligators and giant spiders and cows and horses, barn owls and rats of unusual size. On the rare occasion when I wasn't in fear for my life from giant spiders, I absolutely loved it. As fate would have it, my town-bound father married a farmer's daughter. And I suspect that for most of their marriage, they both longed for a place of their own. But when you become a small-town preacher, you also give up a certain expectation of financial security and therefore the means to buy property. Still, they always found ways to live close to the land, whether it was in Monticello, Illinois, surrounded by corn, or in the heart of Lake Butler, surrounded by farmers who often dropped in to deliver baskets of produce, and occasionally a a half a cow from the butcher, frozen and divvied up into various cuts of meat wrapped in white paper. Except for that short stint in Jacksonville, the whole of my youth was spent in the company of agrarians. By the time we three older kids had moved out and my younger sister, Shauna, was finishing up high school, I got word that mom and dad had found an old house about a mile out of town that suited them perfectly. I was in college at the time, and Jamie and I drove out to see the place during one visit. Nestled under the light gray boughs of pecan trees on six acres, an extravagant amount of property, it seemed, the century-old house fit my parents like a glove. I desperately wanted them to buy it, not just because I was married, and already imagining what a lovely place it would be for our children, uh, our future children to visit, but because my parents seemed to grow 10 years younger just talking about it. They were giddy. The property boasted kumquat trees, pecans, stands of slash pine, cypress trees with smooth, knobby knees pushing up through the thick layer of russet-colored pine straw humus. There was an old sharecropper's cabin, two dry wells that were just deep enough to be dangerous, The backyard featured an old rickety barn. The house itself, a Florida cracker house in architectural terms, featured a tin roof and a wraparound porch, not to mention a wood-burning stove and a fireplace. The term cracker has its roots in Elizabethan Elizabethan, England and was used to describe a braggart or a jokester. In Ireland, uh, the word crack is still used to mean joking or blabbing. Shakespeare even used it in King John Act 2. What cracker is this same that defs our ears with his abundance of superfluous breath? According to some sources, Brits use the term for colonial backcountry Southerners because of their swagger and their penchant for storytelling. By the 19th century, cracker was applied to the cowboys of Florida, not just because of their reputation for shooting the breeze, but also because they cracked whips to drive cattle. Because of the oppressive heat, the houses in Florida were built off the ground with large porches and breezeways, and became known as cracker houses. Now you know. Anyway, after convincing the elders to let them move, 
My parents vacated the parsonage and purchased this lovely old cracker house, at which point they promptly went farmer crazy. They restored the old chicken coop and stocked it. They built a fence in the side yard to enclose several geese. They got a few sheep and a horse, and then they started planting. To be clear, it wasn't as if my folks were delusional hipsters suddenly pretending to be country people. Rather, it was as if they'd been pretending not to be for 30 years, and now they could let their true colors show. As I said, it didn't take long for them to start naming stuff. And it all started with the whole property. I can't remember what else was in the running, but they landed on Shiloh, a name we all approved of, not just because it was aesthetically pleasing, but because of its meaning. Shiloh, one of the places in the Old Testament where the Ark of the Covenant rested for a while, meant peace, and it was undeniably fitting. One of my favorite Christmas memories is of driving through the night so the toddlers would sleep for 10 hours from Nashville. Tired to the bone, Jamie and I cruised through the amber streetlights of Lake Butler as it slumbered and then turned north into the dark piney woods to where Shiloh waited. My mom had decorated the front picket fence with garlands and Christmas lights, and the old house aglow under the glittering stars looked as cozy as a candlelit nativity scene. As we pulled up, the first Noel, sung by our friend Jill Phillips, happened to float weakly through the static of the not-so-local radio station. So we sat in the Honda for an extra few minutes in the perfection of it all. Before we realized, we were exhausted and started the whispery process of unloading the sleeping kids. I knew that the near future would include my mom's peanut butter squares, a steaming turkey, the smell of the fireplace, and pleasantly chilly walks around the property. Shiloh was most certainly the right name for the place. I eventually wrote a song for my folks by the same name, and it ended up on my first record, The guitar part is sufficiently difficult and the key sufficiently high that I seldom play it anymore. But it opens with the lines, rickety fence in a rocking chair, the smell of my father's pipe, cackling goose in the summer air, the garden is green and ripe. When they heard it, my parents gently pointed out the geese don't cackle. And they're right, but honking goose doesn't have the same ring to it. That song was also the occasion of the outing of my dad as a pipe smoker a habit he never would have gotten away with on the front porch of the parsonage in the middle of town. But removed as he was, he took it up with gusto and nobody seemed to mind. There's a good chance that right now, as I'm reading these words, he's on the front porch doing his crossword puzzles with his head wreathed in the pleasant aroma of black Cavendish, while my mom sits in the rocker beside him working on a quilt and trying not to cough. They are delightfully old world, as is their homestead. As it turned out, the place indeed became an indelible part of my children's upbringing. Each summer, my parents hosted a two-week-long Camp Shiloh for the whole gaggle of their grandkids. While I harbor a complicated and painful memory of my time in Florida, my kids have nothing but old-world joy for the place. My dad taught them how to skin catfish. My mom taught them how to do crafts. They went foraging for blueberries. My dad let them hang around his wood shop while he repaired old chairs or lathed pens from fallen pecan limbs. The kids fed sheep and ran in terror from angry geese. They got to know every corner of those six acres, from Elderberry Holler to Goose Grove to the Hobbit Hole under the pecan tree stump. And they grew up unsurprised by the notion that a property would have a name exhumed from the deep earth of the Old Testament. That place is a wonderland for kids, and I've jokingly and lovingly referred to it as a sort of redneck Disney world. But what about the trees? I've mentioned the pecan, cypress, and pine trees, but not the lemon tree right outside the kitchen window, or the clementine I gave them when I couldn't get it to flourish in a pot at my house. 
Now it's covered in clementines. There's a dark, quiet magnolia standing like a nun in prayer at the back go- in the back garden next to the kumquat. And a number of showy crepe myrtles. And along the picket fence, there's a bouquet of blushing azaleas. An arbor my dad built supports the most effusive tangle of wisteria you can imagine. But wait, there's more. I haven't told you about the trees my parents planted for their grandkids. I haven't told you, uh, uh, I I may have mowed down Aiden's red oak at the Warren, but my parents saved the day by planting him a live oak at Shiloh. Asher got an ash tree, get it, grown from a seedling from George Washington Carver's own ash. It's pretty cool. Skye got her very own magnolia. My nephew Isaac's tree is an American sycamore from a seedling at Gettysburg. His brother Elijah got a Schumard oak. My nieces Elizabeth, Hannah, and Lydia got a Satsuma orange, an olive, and a mimosa, respectively. Because it's Florida, and because my green-thumbed parents planted them, those trees will grow deep and tall and broad for decades, if not centuries. Meaningful in a way the rest of the trees are not, purely because of the story of their planting and the children for whom they were planted. But who will be there to tell it? It grieves me to know that whoever ends up with those six acres 50 years from now will most likely tear down the house and uproot the trees to make room for a new and forgettable subdivision or the horror, a convenience store. It's unfathomable to me that anyone on earth will care for it the way they have. Shiloh was lovely when my parents acquired it, but in the last two decades, the structure and the grounds have been tended and kept by a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve who have given themselves to its renewal and flourishing. Everywhere you go, there are signs of my children's presence. In their very own trees, yes, but also in the flower garden where rest the little round concrete pavers in which their pudgy handprints are forever sealed. I didn't grow up there, but in a very real sense, my children did. My parents did too. The little boy and girl living deep in the bones of my parents came alive there as they cut trails through the pine woods, named the fields, and painted those names onto planks of weathered slats, arranged perennials around the old wells, and strung up the zip line. It's like they were still playing house, even as their hair grayed and their joints stiffened. Who they have become is intimately connected to the land they have loved into its own becoming. And now they're old, in their 70s, and certainly wondering often what will become of this home they've made. Their children all moved away to Nashville, Louisville, and Atlanta. And no one's in a position to drop everything and pick up where mom and dad left off. But that doesn't stop them. The lushness of the place is fleeting and all the more precious for it. How marvelous it is to work to sustain the beauty of something even when you suspect, with good reason, that its beauty will fade as soon as you take your hand from the plow. With each visit, I am confronted with two realities, the garden and the fall. Shiloh, to me, is the best of what can happen when humans root themselves to a place. Not only does the place grow better, the humans do too. When I wander the property, Eden's voice rises from a whisper to a song, and it's easier to see what we were meant for, to love the world as God does, shaping it to reflect what was in the beginning, and in even greater glory what will be in the end. But the knowledge that the memories that hang from the limbs like garlands of Spanish moss will be lost to time, forgotten like native songs, overgrown with weeds or wrecked by the willful willful ignorance of progress, fills me with a terrible grief. What will become of my mother's gardens? Where her hands, hands that carry the DNA of that Protestant Frenchman Bartholomaeus Hieronymus Gluck, 
plunge into the dirt to plant hydrangeas. What will become of my father's wood shop, where with a pipe between his teeth he happily turns candlesticks on the lathe? When my children are old, will they take their, their grandchildren to Shiloh to eat the fruit of the trees my parents put in the ground? It's possible, I suppose, but I doubt it. Someone else will buy the place. We'll lose our connection to it. The great sadness of time will bulldoze it beyond recollection. And here is where faith strides into the scene, clothed with vitality to remind us of the hope it plants and the love it grows. I have faith that there is a resurrection coming. And our present sufferings are nothing to the glory that will be revealed in us. If our stories are a part of us, then it follows that they too will be resurrected. I don't know if some redeemed Shiloh will occupy that little corner of Florida, but I believe this. In some sense, we're all living in a parsonage. Longing for a true home. And in the same way, <clears throat> Art and Janice Peterson grew younger as they poured their love into Shiloh and fashioned a garden. We priests of the new creation will be clothed immortal to reign over our own gardens. And we'll do it without the specter of death, hovering over it all, taunting us with the sorrow of time and the lie of futility. Glory be to God, time itself will be redeemed because it will no longer be an adversary, but a friend, an everlasting Sabbath, an unending feast. <clears throat> if my mom and dad made Shiloh into a shadow of Eden in 30 years, think what they'll do with a million. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.